0: WFNU is a volunteer run station made up of many different community voices. Each program expresses one aspect of this diversity and not the view of WFNU or FTI as a whole.
1: This is the ADAPT Revolution. Say it with me, Beth. What? Say it with me. This This is the ADAPT Revolution. Revolution. We want to um, first and foremost acknowledge that we are on the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe and Dakota people in what is also known as Minnesota, and uh, affectionately known to us as the Twin Cities in large part uh, for the roots of this show um, at this moment in time. So welcome all to the ADAPT Revolution.
0: For the fifth episode of ADAPT Revolution, we focus on personhood. What does it mean to be a person with a disability in a world that is continuing to adapt to all of us hopefully as much as we adapt to it. We fight for it, we live for it, we are here for ourselves and for one another and that's what today's episode is about personhood. Today we are featuring a speech by Judy Human a disability justice shiro, as well as a conversation with Patty Byrne and Stacy Milburn about a new social model of disability, and then we'll have a video of Helen Keller with her speech to the Lions Club in 1925. But first, Beth and I will start out with a conversation about personhood and a story about her brother. Another disability hero, Lee Blick.
1: So, just tell me, Beth, um, what, in terms, uh-huh. of, in terms of our work to center the margins, um, uh-huh. when we are all working so diligently to um, center the people that have been most marginalized by um, the society that we live in, for you and I um it's been around what people might call the greater Midwest, you know? Um and uh I spent a little time in Florida as well. Um I uh I don't know if I literally said the word gay in Florida but I uh Oh yeah I certainly said a lot of other things and um I just feel like um if we're centering the people that have literally dis- been displaced um, very recently, not only, um, from the place where they call home, um, to a system that is centralizing, um, a locus of stolen power, um, and control and something that they want to call a financial system, you know, that's based on stolen goods and resources and literally what they might call human capital um, which is you know a fairly disgusting idea in itself Um, you know um, what are the boundaries of um, personhood what are um, you know um, for those of us who are in um, disabled mind bodies um, corporate personhood is an abomination corporate personhood leads to the kinds of fascism that we're experiencing right now, you know, and um, there is no abominable snowman besides capitalism, you know, at this point, not the unchecked capitalism that lets a few people live and leads the rest of us to somehow find another planet to live on. You know, um, the majority of us, as we work to center the margins, um, are no longer interested in those kinds of systems of control and domination. And um, we know um, in a very succinct way how to solve all of the quote-unquote problems of the day. Thank you very much.
2: Mm
1: Right? Right. Right, right. So this week's episode, the fifth episode of Adapt Revolution, Mm -hmm. is all about personhood. What does it really mean to be a person that lives on a planet with other people where we share enough resources and we share enough time and we share enough of ourselves to make everything work for everyone as much as
0: possible. So Beth, let's talk a little bit about people with disabilities that we admire. Is there anyone for you that comes to mind?
2: I would say Judy Heumann, even if she is dead.
1: Well, and because she is dead, dead dead or alive, these are our heroes, you know?
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's why I said that. Um, she's definitely one. Um, oh, let me think. Who else? And my brother.
1: Is there anything that you, is there a story that you'd like to tell about your brother? Uh,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, I. You know, have a cute picture of him, as I told you before, of him kissing me on my head. Yeah. And I just, you know, think it is so cute and funny and innocent.
1: What was your brother's name, Beth?
2: His name was Lee Blick. And he used to, when he was brought home by dad during summer time, and I remember it in 1970. He loved swimming. He, uh, you know, there was a, one of these small pools, if you ever remember those. And I don't know if they had them in the 90s or if they still have them now that you play in in your backyard. He loved that. And when, you know, and according to my sister, at the place that my uncle, my wealthy uncle spent so much for him to be in, in New Jersey, They had a wonderful swimming pool for him to be in, so I would say he was a hell of a lot better off, you know, than than I am here. They don't even have any, you know, exercise room to boot here, so he was a hell of a lot better off, you know, than I was. They had a nice Mm -hmm. swimming, swimming pool. You know, my parents did not, you know, come up, you know, were not dredged in the idea that he was a hopeless case. Yeah. I mean he may have, you know, yeah, he you know was um, you know, at a um a psychological level not an adult, but you know he you know was a lover of swimming. You know, my cousin Becky, you know, was saying that he was pretty handsome, you know, even for his age.
0: Next up, here's a TED Talk by Disability Justice Shiro and civil rights activist, Judy Human.
3: I was born in 1947, a long time ago. And uh, when I was 18 months old, I had polio. I was in an iron lung for three months, and in and out of the hospital for three years. Now, we had lots of neighbors in our Brooklyn neighborhood, and some of them were really very helpful for my parents. Some of them were really afraid of contagion, and they wouldn't even walk in front of our house. They would literally walk across the street. I think this was a time when my family really began to realize what disability meant to some people, fear. And it wasn't even a sure thing that I would live at home, although I didn't learn about this till I was 36 years old. I was having a discussion with my father one night, and he said, you know, when you were two years old, one of the doctors suggested to your mom and I that you live in an institution, that they could just go ahead with their lives and raise their kids kind of be done with having to deal with all the disability-related things. I didn't believe my father, not because he was a liar, but I had never heard this story. And my mother, in fact, validated that. She never wanted to tell me. But in reality, I don't know why I was really surprised by this story, because when I was five years old and my mother, like mothers and fathers all across the United States, was taking me to school to enroll, She pushed my wheelchair to the school in walking distance to our house, pulled the wheelchair up the steps into the school, and we were greeted by the principal, not really greeted, but the principal said, no, I couldn't come to that school because it wasn't accessible. But he told us not to worry, because the Board of Education, in fact, would send a teacher to my house. And they did, for a total of, two-and-a-half hours a week. But for good behavior, they threw in an occupational therapist who taught me that very essential skill of (laughs) cross-stitching. I don't cross-stitch today. (laughs) I didn't actually get to go to school in a real building until I was nine years old. And then I was in classes only with disabled children, in a school that had mainly non-disabled children. And in my classes, there were students up to the age of 21. And then, after 21, they went to something called sheltered workshops, with menial work and earning either nothing or below minimum wage. So I understood discrimination, my parents understood discrimination. My parents came from Germany, They were German Jews who left in the 1930s, escaping the Holocaust. My parents lost family, and they lost parents. Both my parents lost their parents in the Holocaust. And so they realized that they could not be silent as things were going wrong for me in my life. Not me personally, but what was going on around me. They learned that because I used a wheelchair, None of the high schools in New York City and the entire city were wheelchair accessible. So what was supposed to happen is I was supposed to go back onto home instruction, along with many other students. So my parents banded together with other parents. They went to the Board of Education, and they demanded that the Board of Ed make some of the high schools accessible. And they did. And so I and many others we're finally able to go to high school, a regular high school, and take regular classes. So what happened next? I was learning more and more about what discrimination was, and equally important, I was learning that I needed to become my own advocate. I was entering college, Long Island University, and I had always wanted to be a teacher. And so I minored in education, and I took all the appropriate courses, And then, when it was time for me to go for my license, I had to take a written exam, an oral exam, and a medical exam. At that time, all three of those exams were given in completely inaccessible buildings. So I had friends who carried me up and down the steps for these exams. Not in a motorized wheelchair. (laughs) In a manual wheelchair. But I passed my oral exam, I passed my written exam. My medical exam was something completely different. One of the first questions the doctor asked me was, could I please show her how I went to the bathroom? I was 22 years old, and you know when you go for any kind of an interview, you think about all the kinds of questions people could ask you. (laughs) That was not one of them. (laughs) And I was like freaked out in the first place because I had heard that there were actually no disabled people using wheelchairs who were teachers in New York. So each step along the way, I was expecting something bad. So I said to her, is it a requirement that teachers show their students how to go to the bathroom? (laughs) If it is, I can do that. So no surprise, I was failed because I didn't pass the medical. The official reason that I was denied my job was paralysis of poliomyelitis sequelae of poli I'm sorry. Paralysis of both lower limbs sequelae of poliomyelitis. Honestly, I didn't know what the word sequelae went, so I went to the dictionary and it meant because of. <laughs> so I'd been denied my license because I couldn't walk. So what was I going to do? This is a really important time in my life because it would be the first time that I really would be challenging the system, me. And although I was working with a lot of other friends who had disabilities who were encouraging me to move forward with this, it was nonetheless quite frightening. But I was really very lucky. I had a friend who was a disabled student at Long Island University and was also a stringer at the New York Times and he was able to get a reporter to write a really good piece about what had happened and why he thought what had happened was wrong. The next day, there was an editorial in the New York Times with the title of Human Versus the Board of Education, and the New York Times came out in support of my getting my teaching license. (laughs) And then the same day, I got a call from an attorney who was writing a book about civil rights, and he was calling me to interview me, and I was interviewing him. He didn't know that. And at the end of our discussion, I said, would you be willing to represent me? I want to sue the Board of Education. And he said, yes. Now, sometimes I say that the stars were aligned around this court case because we had an amazing judge, the first African-American female federal judge, (laughs) Constance Baker Motley. And she knew discrimination when she saw it. (laughs) So she strongly encouraged the Board of Ed to give me another medical exam, which they did, And then I got my license, and while it took a number of months for me to actually get a principal to offer me a job, I finally did get a job, and I started teaching that fall in the same school that I had gone to, second grade. So (laughs) That's a whole other TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) But I was learning, as my friends were, and people I didn't know around the country, that we had to be our own advocates, that we needed to fight back people's views, that if you had a disability, you needed to be cured, that equality was not part of the equation. And we were learning from the civil rights movement and from the women's rights movement, we were learning from them about their activism and their ability to come together not only to discuss problems but to discuss solutions and what was born is what we call today the disability rights movement so i'd like to tell you a couple of riddles how many people do you think it takes to stop traffic on madison avenue during rush hour in new york city give a guess how many uh 50 one would be too little. <laughs> 50 people and there were no accessible paddy wagons, so they had to just kind of deal with us.
4: <laughs>
3: but let me tell you another riddle. How many people does it take to stop a bus in New York City when they refuse to let you on because you're in a wheelchair? One. That is the right answer. <laughs> so What you have to do, though, is take your wheelchair, (laughs) sidle in the right place, right in front of the steps, and give it a little push, underneath, and then their bus can't move. (laughs) Any of you who want to learn how to do that, talk to me after this. In 1972, President Nixon vetoed the Rehabilitation Act. We protested, he signed it. Then the regulations that needed to be promulgated to implement that law had not in fact been signed. We demonstrated they were signed. And when the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, our Emancipation Proclamation Act, looked as though it might not in fact be passed in the House or Senate, Disabled people from all across the United States came together, and they crawled up the Capitol steps. That was an amazing day. And the House and Senate passed the ADA. And then President Bush signed the ADA. This is a great picture. President Bush signed the ADA on the lawn of the White House. It was an amazing day and there were about 2,000 people there. It was July 26, 1990. And one of the most famous statements he had in his speech was, let the shameful walls of exclusion finally come tumbling down. For any of you in the room who are 50 or older, or maybe even 40 or older, you remember a time when there were no ramps on the streets, when buses were not accessible, when trains were not accessible, where there were no wheelchair-accessible bathrooms and shopping malls, where you certainly did not have a sign language interpreter or captioning or Braille or other kinds of supports, these things have changed, and they have inspired the world. And disabled people around the world want laws like we have, and they want those laws enforced. And so what we've seen is something called the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. It is a treaty that was adopted in 2006. It's celebrating its 10th year anniversary. More than 165 countries have joined this treaty. It is the first international human rights treaty fully focused on disabled people. But I am sad to say that our U.S. Senate Has failed to recommend to our president that we ratify the treaty. We signed it in 2009, but it doesn't come into force until ratification. And the president, no president, can ratify a treaty without the consent of the Senate. So we feel really strongly that our U.S. Senate needs to do its job, that our Senate needs to enable us as Americans not only to be able to assist disabled people and governments around the world to learn about the good work that we've doing that we've been doing but it's equally important that disabled people have the same opportunities to travel, study and work abroad as anyone else in our country and as long as many countries don't have the same laws as we do and don't enforce them if they have them opportunities for disabled people are more limited. When I travel abroad, I'm always meeting with disabled women. And those women tell me stories about how they experience violence and rape. And how in many cases, these forms of violence occur from family members and people that they know. People that they know who in fact may be working for them and frequently, these cases are not adjudicated. I meet disabled people who have been offered jobs by businesses because they live in a country where there's a quota system, and in order to avoid a fine, they will hire you and then tell you, you don't need to come to work because we really don't need you in the facility. I have visited institutions where the stench of urine is so strong that before you open the door of your vehicle, you're kind of pushed back, and then gone into those institutions where people should be living in the community with appropriate supports and seeing people almost naked, people who are chemically drugged and people who are living lives of despair. These are some of the things that the U.S. needs to be doing more to correct. We know discrimination when we see it, and we need to be fighting it together. So what is it that we can be doing together? I encourage you all to recognize that disability is a family you can join at any point in your life. I'd like to see by a show of hands how many of you have ever broken a bone. And then I'd like, when you leave today, to maybe write a couple of sentences about what that period of time has been like for you, because frequently I hear from people, you know, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that, people talked to me differently, they acted differently towards me, and that's what I see and other disabled people see in flashing letters. But we, you in this room, people listening and watching this TED Talk, together, we can make a difference. Together, we can speak up for justice. Together, we can help change the world. Thank you. I have to go catch my bus.
0: Next up, here's a conversation between Patty Byrne and Stacey Milburn on a social model of disability. It's called, My Body Doesn't Oppress Me, Society Does.
5: So if you and I go to a building and there's no ramp, typically people think the problem is that we use wheelchairs. Where a social model of disability would say, the problem is that the building's inaccessible. And it doesn't seem like a radical concept, but it changes the fundamental way we think about disability. and and the work that we need to do to include people with disabilities.
6: People often don't understand ability to be within this kind of uh, context and access to adaptive devices and where we are located economically. Um, You know, when I have my access needs met, I'm functionally not disabled. You know, but when places have stairs and everything is built for people that stand, so I can't see anything, and, you know, it's a really dark environment, so I can't see anything, Um, because, you know, as you get older, your vision changes. (laughs) Um, So now I need a lot of light to see things. In an environment like that, of course I'm disabled.
5: I really like separating out impairment from disability. So impairment as you know like physical or neurological manifestation like what's real i have a physical impairment mm-hmm. and then disability is like what society creates as barriers because of the impairment mm-hmm. so like as you're saying if we're in a place with where my access needs are getting met then my impairment isn't so significant um, but when it's not because society doesn't want to then that's the problem so I think it's important to really think about like, disability and the context of what is disabling, like the environment. The last building I worked in, it was really cool because um, it was universally designed. So all the doors had push buttons or they were like magically open, you know, as you walk up or everything is like automatically at my height. And in that place, I didn't need a lot of accommodations but then in an environment where it's not universally accessible, where people with disabilities and parents and all types of folks weren't thought of in the design process, um, that's when there's problems. You know, I'm not
6: saying like it's easy to live with an impairment. It's not easy to live, you know, when you have like four kids. It's not easy to live when it's like 20 degrees outside. I mean, you know, for those of us in the Bay Area, like 55 is freezing. But, um, you know, I mean, there are times when it's just not convenient to have a body, but that's not what oppresses us. What oppresses us is living in a system which disregards us, is violent toward us, you know, essentially wants to uh, subjugate our bodies or kill us. Uh, that's oppressive. My body doesn't oppress me. My body, my body's fun, but society, <laughs> uh, that, that's, that can be incredibly oppressive.
5: I think when we focus on a person's individual impairment or diagnosis, as you said, it kind of like lets society off the hook. Mm -hmm. It makes all the focus on that individual circumstance when really ableism and exclusion Mm -hmm. and violence happen because of systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. So we know it's not like an individual person with a disability that's the issue, but we can look at the way, for example, with policing. Victims of police violence are 50% people with disabilities, if not more. Or if we mm-hmm. look at the special special education system, um, it's not the individual special education student, but we can see oh. how um, special education becomes continued segregation for so many black mm-hmm. and brown students. So when we focus on like the individual impairment, it kind of takes away from that bigger picture. We're
6: seen as disposable, because for those of us that are not going to have like a treatment or a cure with our bodies, um, and we kind of fly in the face of this idea of medicine as God, we're seen as less than, and you're awesome. You're fabulous, and you are beautiful, and I, you're, how could, the idea that someone would think that you're less than is just absurd. And yet that's like the framework that we're in, you know? And it's incredibly painful. There are always going to be Crips. There are always going to be, you know, people in pain. It's just the nature of being in a body. But the social body, we can change. Um, and that's, I think it requires a power analysis.
0: As a final feature for today's episode, we would like to share with you a speech that Helen Keller made to the Lions Club in 1925.
7: Thank you, President Mehta. I desire to present to you shortly one who is known worldwide for her contribution to the blind, delegates and ladies. She comes from a state that boasts of many distinguished citizens, but none as distinguished as Helen Keller. I refer of course to the grand old state of Alabama. Ah. Miss Keller is with us today to share with us her life work. She is going to ask the Lions to be her friends and indeed we are already her friends and the friends of the blind in this national and indeed even international movement. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Helen Keller and her lifelong friend, Mrs. Anne Sullivan Macy.
8: Thank you. President Newman, for over 20 years, Helen Keller has kept her hand on my face a good deal of the time, feeling the vibrations of my voice, putting her finger in my mouth and feeling my tongue and imitating the positions and repeating them over and over until at last you can hear her speak words that you can understand I can't think of anything. I want to ask you if you can think of anything more to your heart's desire than helping this brave girl to put forth a great project. She has overcome tremendous obstacles people always love those who overcome great obstacles can you think of anyone who has overcome greater obstacles, anyone whom you would more desire to help carry through a great work she is going to ask you now in her own words
9: Dear Lions and Ladies I suppose you have heard the legend that represents opportunity as a capricious lady who knocks on every door but walks. And if the door isn't open quickly, she passes on never to return. And that is as it should be. Lovely, desirable ladies won't wait. You have to go out and grab them. I am your opportunity. I am knocking at your door. I want to be adopted. The legend doesn't say what you are to do. When several beautiful opportunities present themselves at the same door, I guess you have to choose the one you love best. I hope you will adopt me. I am the youngest here, and what I offer you is full of splendid opportunities for service. Try to imagine how you would feel If you were suddenly stricken blind today, picture yourself stumbling and groping at noonday as in the night. Your work, your independence gone. You have heard how from the fingers of another, a ray of light from another soul touched the darkness of my mind and I found myself, found the world, found God. It is because my teacher, Learned about me and broke through the dark, silent imprisonment which held me. That I am able to work for myself and others. The opportunity I bring to you, lions, is this will you? not help me hasten the day when there will be no preventable blindness, no little deaf blind child on top, no blind man or woman unaided. I appeal to you lions, you who have your sight. You who are strong and kind and brave. Will you not constitute yourselves as Knights of the Blind in the crusade against darkness? Thank you.
0: And that about wraps up our episode of Adapt Revolution, your weekly antidote to hate, greed, and ableism, where the D word is disability. Thanks for tuning in.
4: Lately, I've been thinking about roots and wings, how I need these things. I need roots in the ground to keep me strong. any wings so i can fly Bao about...